Hey everybody, welcome to this month's Metal Misconduct. I'm Brian Slagle from Metal Blade Records, and of course we always have our good buddy from NHL.com, Sean Work. How are you doing, Sean? Doing great. I uh, couldn't be better. The season's over, and uh, it's time to maybe relax a little bit and listen to more metal. <laughs> so is this vacation time for you now? Not quite yet. Yeah, as you know, we have some free agency to deal with, and then uh, hopefully in uh, late, late August we'll take a couple of weeks and just chill out. Yeah, speaking of free agency, the Penguins just signed Crosby to a huge deal. That was kind of interesting. I guess they feel that he must not have any more concussions in him? Well, I'm sure they're going to get it insured, and I think they did it for two reasons. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, free agency will have opened a couple of days before this comes out, and uh, I think they wanted to have him under contract because they're going to make a run at some top free agents, and they wanted to let him know that he was under contract. And he also he left about $65 million on the table, um, which I wish I could do. But uh, he left about $65 million on the table. And if you don't think that Ray Shiro is uh, who's the Pittsburgh GM, is he going to bring that up to guys he's, he's courting and say, hey, look, our best player left some money on the table because he wants to win and he wants to win now. Uh, help me out, give me a couple million off the deal, and I can promise you we're going to be one of the top teams in, in, in the league. So yeah, I, I think that's why they did it now. Well, I mean, he already made whatever, 60-some-odd million. So he's going to make about $200 million just from the NHL contract, not to mention anything else. So he's certainly not hurting for any money. Um, they're already one of the top teams in the league. They just can't they just can't win in the play. Well, I mean, they've won one cup, so I give them that. But they they can't win in the playoffs. So I certainly. I mean, look, I'm a Penguins fan, but I thought Crosby was incredibly immature and horrible in this year's playoffs. So, as the leader, that scares me. Yeah, you know, I I, I somewhat agree. I it was not his finest moment, but it was that series was like. Uh, it was like the Bermuda Triangle of hockey, I think. It was nobody's finest moment at all. The goalies were horrible. Everybody lost their mind. Well, it the, was sc the scorers were pretty good. <laughs> the scores were great, but, uh, I mean, nobody played in character. Let's put it that way. James Neal, I I've never seen him play like that. Um, you know, Sidney Crosby lost his mind. I think I think they've had some time to digest that and I think if you would, you know, talk to Sid in a very quiet moment, he would say that the emotions got the better of us. You know, that had played up so much for the last month of the season. They played two or three times in that last month and they were ugly games. The last game they played in the regular season was uh, you know, the two coaches standing on the, the top of the, the half wall screaming at each other and and you know that just carried over and and they had so much time to think about it that you know it just built up to the point where it was hysteria well, i think in retrospect that's going to help both of those teams they're both very very young teams very very young leadership who still are pretty immature so hopefully that if they reflect upon that because clearly the flyers had nothing left after that series as well you know they need to calm down and play better in in the playoffs but i think both teams desperately need some more veteran leadership especially the penguins if they don't sign somebody that can wear an a that's you know in their 30s that has some experience i think the penguins are not going to be very successful again next year but then again what do i know i didn't even think the kings were going to win the cup so I was going to say, I think this is the first time he spoke since the Kings win. Do I even get to congratulate you after all the disparaging remarks you made? 
Well, that's the funny thing is, is everybody was congratulating me. And I was like, well, that's kind of odd as probably in the, my entire lifespan of rooting for the LA Kings, this was the one year I rooted for them the least <laughs> in my entire existence. So I guess that's how Murphy's Law works, right? I, I guess sometimes it, it works that way. You know, they they were a great story, though. I mean, just everything about it was was it was it was unbelievable. Uh, I mean, I've never seen a team ever just flip a switch like that. Have a very mediocre regular season, you know, going to the playoffs, you know, playing, you know, ba- I mean, they barely even made it, and then all of a sudden they flicked the switch and they became this team that no one could even come close to beating. Yeah, you know, I, the most amazing thing to me is when it was all over, they'd given up less goals in the whole playoffs than Pittsburgh had given up in the first round. Yeah, well, also, you know, they also got very lucky, too. First series, Sedin's out. Second series, Peter Angelo and Halak are out. The Coyotes were just basically happy to be there <laughs> into the third round with all the trials and tribulations that they've been through. And then they get to the Devils and Kovalchuk is hurt. So they kind of really, they didn't play any team at full strength. So that kind of, it was one of those, everything kind of worked out perfectly for them. Well, it usually does for the Stanley Cup champion. That's why it's such a hard trophy to win. There's very few, very few teams that get dealt a bad hand that can overcome it. But uh, you know, I, I think they made a lot of their own luck too. I mean, you know, Sedin was hurt going into that series, but you know, a lot of those other guys like I heard not Kovalchuk, he he was hurt in the in the playoffs earlier. But uh, they they were the ones that put a hurt on a lot of the guys that that were were unavailable. You know, you look at Peter Angelo. I mean, they gave him a pretty good knock around. And and that was pretty much their recipe is they were just going to – they never got into a long series, but they played like they were going to be in long series, and they were just going to take a pound of flesh every chance they got. And, uh, you know, they got in on the four check. They didn't score – I mean, they scored more goals than they scored in the regular season, but, you know, they, they just they just played this grinding four check game that, that just made teams – Almost, bail. it looked like teams were bailing out at times. Like it just wasn't worth the price that, that LA was asking them to pay. Yeah, and their defense obviously played phenomenal. I mean, every all six of those guys played probably the best hockey they've ever played in their career. You know, Skidari obviously was on the Penguins team that won, so he, he's played at that level before. But all those other guys really stepped it way up. Especially, I thought Dowdy was just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, no doubt he was good. I, to me, the whole key was Scuderi because he had won before, and, and and I thought he played fantastic. I, I thought he was really good in that series. And, and you know, everybody before he won the cup, everybody's ready to run Lombardi out on a rail. And to me, that's one of his best signings. I mean, they they have that guy. I think for at least another two years at three million a year. You know, I, I mean, what GM wouldn't want that? Uh, that guy. Is- oh, oh no, I, I thought that was brilliant. I always said the one thing about Lombardi is I thought you know, and he said when he came to LA, we're going to build from the back to the front. And clearly, with Quick and Bernier, he's got two amazing goaltenders, and they've got a couple more in the system that have you know uh, Jones and a couple other guys that have a lot of potential. Clearly, they've got a ton of defensemen. I mean, the one trade. That that I was horrified by was the Johnson for Carter trade. Because yeah. I love Johnson, and I also think Carter's not 
such a great dude. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, Carter, Carter's a funny guy. He'll play one game every five games. But when he plays that one game, he's pretty good. But the big key to that was Voyant, bringing Voynov in, who I felt had a phenomenal series and was really one of the biggest differences. And, and he played so well when Johnson left, and that opened the doors for Dowdy to kind of be the dominant number one defenseman, and that all kind of worked perfectly. Yeah, and you know, sometimes it's as simple as that. When when guys are in defined roles, you know, they're not looking over their shoulder worrying about ice time. I think for the first time Drew didn't have anybody to compete with him for, you know, top minutes, first power play, anything like that. And he wasn't worried about one mistake and being pushed back down. Same thing with Voinoff. And, and, you know, I think for some of those guys, it was especially with the coach that they had, you know, Suter, who's very demanding, I, uh, I, you know, Daryl Sutter. I, I just think that um, a lot of times during the season, they, it seemed like they were playing scared. You know, you're going to make one mistake and, and you know, you're going to find yourself at the end of the bench. And then when they decided to find what everybody's going to do, even on the front lines, you know, they brought up Nolan and King and, and they found a role for those guys pretty quick. And those guys knew that as long as they got in on the forecheck, hit the defenseman along the back wall, and tried to turn over pucks. It didn't matter what they did. They were going to have, you know, 10 to 12 minutes a game, and, and that's when players flourish. Well, I'm waiting for the book of this series to come out in about 20 years, because the team also seems to have some elements of the 86 Mets, where, you know, Carter Richards obviously have a lot of off-ice issues. Dowdy now has a lot of off-ice issues. Seems like there's an awful lot of uh, partying going on out side of the uh the the rink there but it seemed to work just like it did for the Mets in 86 yeah you know I, I mean you're young guys you know and and you know sometimes it gets blown out I, I think you know you live there I mean it's hard to to be a superstar in any field and live in LA you know there, there's just so much to do and, and so many temptations so you know but I mean, they made it work. Maybe not during the year, and and maybe the distractions were too much. But you know, I, I don't. I think when you when you look at that team, I think it was guys like Scuderi and Willie Mitchell and Jarrett Stoll, guys that had either been close or had been there, were really able to put the clamps on these guys and say, "Hey, two months. This is what we're going to do. No distractions. No." Well, Jarrett Stoll's a party dude too. If you follow uh, <laughs> Gretzky's daughter's Twitter. Yeah, well, he's got the cup now. Oh, no, Instagram. Cups, but <laughs> but I, I think, you know, during that run, I think some of those veteran guys really put a clamp on things and said, "This we're going to, two months, we're going to sacrifice everything. Well, everything. I don't know about that because, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that's been coming out, especially here in the local L.A. press, was there was stuff going on during the playoffs. Uh, in fact, there was the one, the one, you know, kind of infamous Dowdy story, which got squelched, actually, until after they had won the cup. Yeah, and I wasn't sure of the timing. I thought that was uh, late in the regular season. But, uh, and, you know, nothing as of the point where we're talking right now, no charges have been filed. They're still No, I'm sure it was. It's, look, I, you know, I live in L.A. I, I, I know the, the people here, and I'm sure that it was just some, some nonsense. But, you know, still kind of like, you know, even the Kobe thing, you know, you got to have, you have to make better decisions about who you're going to hang out with. <laughs> 
That is that is that is very true. But uh, I mean, my children are only seven and four. But uh, I know when they're in their early twenties and they have some disposable income, those are going to be uh, tougher decisions to make than maybe I would want them to be. Oh, uh, hey, without without a <laughs> doubt, without a doubt. But hey, they won the cup, so it for some reason it all worked out uh, perfectly for them. So it's still kind of weird seeing that the Stanley Cup, the L.A. Kings, have won the Stanley Cup. I was watching the draft, and they had that commercial that comes on. You're L.A. Kings are now the Stanley Cup champions. Yeah, really? And the, that did the that Cup, really happen? Yeah, the Cup's going to be in California all year, all summer. You know, it's already been in Hermosa Beach. You went to the L.A. Times uh, this week. Um, you know, I'm sure they're going to have it back a couple more times. I mean, what's better than the Stanley Cup in Hollywood together? Hey, well, it's cool. I mean, both Anaheim and, and L.A. have now won the Cup, which is pretty pretty amazing for us West people. Me, who you know was born and raised on the West Coast in L.A. See two local teams actually have the Stanley Cup is pretty amazing. But it seems like it's, you know, I was watching the Kings and you forget, like, you know, the Carolina Hurricanes won a cup. So, you know, any kind of anything can happen these days with the free agency and, and kind of how everything is pretty evened out. It seems like there's no dynasties anymore. There's no powerhouses. You know, you get these teams that can do pretty well for a few years, but it's still awfully tough to win every year. Yeah, no, it is much harder, and that's why you look at teams that are perennial good, even if they don't win, and you have to give them more credit. I mean, they'll never be the Islanders or, or the Oilers of those dynasty years, but, you know, if New Jersey had figured out a way to pull that out, if they had never got down three games to none and had figured out a way to pull that out, you know, you're, you're looking at four cups in, in uh, 16 years. Um, you know, that's almost unheard of here. I mean, Detroit did it, but there's very few other teams that do it. And, and you know, what they did this year, I thought, was just uh, mind-boggling. A first-year coach, guys you've never even heard of. Their whole fourth line wasn't even in the NHL at the All-Star break. And, uh, you know, it was just uh, – their goalie's 41 years old. I mean, it, it's just – it's you know, as much as it was mind-boggling that the Kings won, it was mind-boggling that this Devils team, out of all the Devil teams that they've had, was the one that made the first run at the Cup after the 2003 win. Well, I hate to say it, but it really shows the regular season means nothing. Zero. I mean, I saw both the Devils and Kings quite a bit during the regular season play live, and they were both horrible. I mean, I went to a game in January, the Bruins against the Devils. I think the Bruins won 6-1, to one, and the Devils looked awful. Bur- <coughs> Marty... Brodeur looked like he was ready to retire. The defense couldn't do anything. They couldn't score. I mean, they looked awful, just awful. And, you know, same thing for a lot of the Kings. And then four or five months later, they're both in the Stanley Cup Finals. Yeah, you know, I mean, but you say it doesn't mean anything. And and in in some ways, I don't think it does. Like, anybody can win, you know. I mean, the Kings were an eight seed and the Devils were a six seed. But where I think it does matter is, is you're right, both those teams were awful, but they had a season to figure it out, you know. Peter DeBoer, the Devils coach, had some time to figure things out and and to get them to play the, the way he wanted. I mean, that Devil team at the end of the year was a far different team than the beginning of the year, and they were 180 degrees different than the way they played last year. I mean, they were quick on the puck. You know, they, they forechecked with two, sometimes three guys with the lead. 
I mean, I've been I've been covering the Devils since 1994. There's never been a New Jersey team that's ever done that. Like, I don't even know how Lou survived the playoffs when they would get a lead and, and all of a sudden you'd see two guys go barreling into the offensive zone trying to get the puck back. So, you know, he needed that whole year to kind of sell his vision to the team and say, look, if we do this and we do it right, we're going to win. We have the team that can play this system and, and this is how I'm going to exploit my best players and this is how I'm going to hide my deficiencies. And, and it, it worked unbelievably. It's a very, very long preseason. Yeah, to a degree it is, but uh, it's worth it if, you, if you're the last one left standing in June. So now there's a lot of talk about there being a lockout this season in the CBA and everything. Now, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time on the East Coast and talked to quite a few people that seem to know what they're talking about, and they all tell me that there's no way there's going to be a lockout. I guess the first kind of good sign that I thought that I saw was that the, they agreed on the salary cap, the ceiling, and the floor this 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 just recently. So that's helpful. So, do you feel that it's it's going to be a lockout now, or do you kind of start to feel like other people where it's maybe not going to be? I, let's just put it this way: I have my fingers crossed, and uh, we're going to leave it at that. That's you know, I uh, I get paid to throw a couple of words together, but I've talked to some lawyers and and done some other things, and they're on a completely different plane than I am. And you know, I, I would like to think that I understand some of the issues, but they go much deeper than me. I you know, I just hope so far the the rhetoric has been. Uh, uh, pleasant and non-confrontational and, and I just, uh, you know, you hope it continues that way and, and they figure out a way. The biggest thing, and you know, the players have said this and, and to a degree the owners have said it, the players, you know, Shane Doan said the other day when the players had their meetings, he said, you know what, this time it's not about systems. You know, last time they were blowing up hockey. I mean, it had never had a salary cap. It had never had any of the things that the owners wanted to fix the system. This time they're just, they're arguing about numbers. You know, the system's in place. It's not going to get repealed. So, it's more about, you know, how the pie gets cut up. And, and I think that's a lot easier to do without acrimony than to have to make a brand new pie. Well, also the fact that the NFL, Major League Baseball, and, and the NBA have just gone through the same thing. And there's a pretty good precedence. I mean, they, all those leagues are kind of in the same boat in terms of how much revenue, the, the, how much money that the players get versus what the owners get. They all sign 10-year deals. You know, I'm hoping that the NHL will look at, okay, these three other sports here have a model. Basically, if you look at the three, it's very similar. Let's just look at that model and get as close as it that we can and move on. And, and you know, hopefully, like I said, hopefully that's that's what happens. That's, you know, their, their early sense. And it's, you know, they have the whole summer to do it. So, you know, you, you just, if you love hockey, you just, you know, you just hope that everything, everything works out. Well, yeah, obviously, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, look, if they shorten the preseason, as I call it, which you call it the regular season there, uh, I suppose it won't be such a bad a bad thing. But uh, hopefully they get it done without too much acrimony, and then they get back to the business of hockey. And hopefully they also – my other thing is they got to start cleaning up this obstruction because it's getting really bad again. And some of the games, you know, even though the playoffs were pretty good, I mean, some of the games, certainly the regular season even playoffs, were not the most exciting games because obstruction is back in a big way. 
Yeah, it, it's come. It's coming back. The big one now is you still you don't see a ton of the water skiing that you used to see, you used to see, which was just you know you watch some old videos from the early two thousands and you know guys are just hooking on for a ride up the ice. You you really don't see that anymore. What you see more now is kind of that casual pick play where guys will step right in front of another guy and kind of slow them down and and, and you know. Part of that's in response to the fact that, you know, they opened the game up so much coming out of the lockout that people are getting in on the forecheck so hard that, you know, your defense is just getting decimated and you you almost have to step in front of those guys to protect the guy that's going back to get the puck. So, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that they will look at and, and kind of try and even it out a little bit again because I, I do think there's a happy medium there somewhere. Yeah, I hope so. I think one thing that I noticed too, I think it's worse. The biggest problem that I see is it's on the face-offs. When you watch a face-off now in the NHL, everybody is in the middle and the way of everybody else. Everybody's hooking and holding. And so off of a face-off, there's no chance for a breakout either way because there's all of this. I mean, it's really, really bad there. And if you know, if you watch, you can clearly see everybody's holding everybody else. It's almost like the standstill as soon as the face-off drops. So that's one thing that I think they have to look at. And Some people have already mentioned that, which made me very happy. So hopefully it gets a little bit better and they start to, to do it and then they keep it up so that players kind of you know get used to it. Because... The other problem, I think we talked about this before on the show, is that whatever they, whatever the NHL decides to call, people are going to get around it, and the coaches are going to figure out a way to get around it and make it the way they want it to be, which is super defensive. Yeah, you know, and, and as far as the face-off things, they already started to make that move. You know, the one thing that they're not going to allow next year is they're not going to allow that guy to get down really low and use his hands on the face-off like a lacrosse-style face-off, which you started to see a lot. Because all your power is down low. If you can get down almost on your knees and get that low center of gravity, you know, you have so much torque on your stick, the other guy can't move. And then you just fall to your knees and you look like a dog digging the puck back to your D. So, you know, that's going to be a penalty. And, uh, you know, there's going to be no closing your hand on the puck anywhere, um, which I think is overdue because you've seen that let's catch the puck and take three strides mm-hmm. and then throw, throw it on the ice. Uh, and that's, uh, that's almost like the old school travel in the NBA. Like they've just let it expand so much that it's, it's ridiculous. You should have to bat it down and, and you should never be able to close your hand on the puck. So they've, they've done that, you know, and then I think, you know, to me, that kind of uh, interference that goes on in a face-off to me is very much like the shot blocking. Like, you know, they're, they're just all very cynical ways to, to play in your own end. And they're always going to happen to some degree. You penalize it. I, I remember there was a call in the finals where somebody got uh, called for a face-off interference, and I, I was shocked. Um, and it was, you know, it was a painful penalty because you're in the finals. And uh, But uh, that's what they're going to have to start doing. You know, I think you call... 30 of those in the first month of the season and guys guys won't be so eager to step in front of other guys. Now the other hot button issue was the shot blocking. There's a lot people are all kind of on both sides on that. I mean, I don't really mind shot shot blocking quite honestly. Do you think the NHL will do something about that or just kind of keep it as it is? I, I don't I don't know what you could do. The only exactly. way to me you could do it. There's basically two ways you could do it. You could tell a guy that he can't leave his feet 
and and that to me that's just mayhem. And or you could do some sort of an illegal defense, and hockey's too fast for that to happen. You know the way I look at shot blocking, I, I kind of look at it two ways. One, you know, both teams that were in the final did a really good job at it, but they did it within their scheme. You know, it wasn't just put five guys in front of the net and and try to take away your your shooting angles. They both had good goalies, and you know they blocked shots where it was appropriate. But you're gonna win the Stanley Cup, you're gonna pay a price for it, and part of that price is blocking shots. Where I have a problem with it, and you can't legislate it out, you would just think that the owners or the fans would do it. If you look at a team like the New York Rangers, right, talent everywhere on that team, up front, in the back, Brad Richards, Marion Gabarik, all those guys, you know, they're talking about getting Rick Nash, but at their very heart, they play a very almost devil's like 1996 game, you know, maybe not quite obvious with the trap, but it's a very defensive game. And, you know, if you have all that firepower on your, on your, on your roster, why would you do that? You know, like that's, that's the mindset that, that kind of blows me away. I think if you don't have a very good team, you should tell every one of the 20 guys on your team to go block shots, or if you don't have a good goalie, but the Rangers have a good team and a good goalie and they should attack more. And well, that's just one example. There's other teams that are like that. Well, the Rangers, though, were interesting because I watched a lot of Ranger games, especially live this year, and they're an interesting team. But This is classic John Tortorella. He did this when he was in Tampa. He would play a very defensive game if that's what was warranted for the opponent. But he could also ramp it up and play very up, up-tempo kind of fun games. I'd say the Rangers in the regular season probably, I don't know if it's 50-50, 60-40, or whatever you want to do call it, in terms of how the style of play that they would do. But then they got in the playoffs and they kind of reverted to a much more defensive style, which I think they kind of had to do because they had so many injuries up front. They didn't have enough firepower to really make it work. And when you got guys like Gabbert who you know could barely move... That was kind of difficult, but I actually like the way Tortorella coaches and plays. You know, I, I'm I'm an up tempo guy. I want to see up tempo hockey. Bore, I hate boring like the Columbus Blue Jackets or St. Louis Blues or you know those sort of styles of teams. I mean, I I can't watch it. I I tried watching some of those games with the regular season. I can't do it. The Rangers though were fun. They would they would play a much more up up tempo game when it warranted that, and that's classic Tortorella. Yeah, and but the fact that it never came out in the playoffs when everything was on the line was frustrating. I mean, that Washington New York Rangers series was was so difficult to watch. You know, there were stars everywhere on that ice, and they were all blocking shots, playing defense, and those were their primary responsibilities. Nobody went, nobody attacked. I mean, it was it was uh, it looked like pong is what it looked like. It looked like if you if you remember the old oh yeah Atari. Pong. I mean, that's what it looked like. Get to the red line, slam it in, go try and knock somebody around, hope you get it out in front, and, and you know, you score a goal. And, and, you know, that's basically how the Rangers won that series. They scored a couple of really ugly goals, and a couple more than Washington scored, and that's how they won. But, you know, I, I think there's hope in Washington again, because I, I don't think you'll ever see Adam Oates, who's just hired as their coach, ever play a defensive style. I mean, that guy was the was the greatest passer I think I've ever seen besides for Wayne Gretzky. And, and you know, I mean, that guy is pure offense. So hopefully he opens things up for, for the, the 
talent-laden roster that he has, and you see Washington go back to kind of that fun game that they played a few years ago. Oh, I hope so, because if you watched Semin and Ovechkin when they went over to the World Championships and played for Russia, they were different players. They were flying all over the ice, scoring, making these amazing plays. Like, where was that when they were playing for the Caps? But because they played in that horrible system, they weren't allowed to do that. And it's you know, it's like you've got these thoroughbreds, and you're you're holding them back. As soon as you let them go, they go crazy. So yeah, hopefully some of that will, will come back. And I guess it'll be interesting to see if Semin signs there or not. It seems to be that people think he won't. Yeah, he's he's one of the most interesting guys on the market right now. I think you know where he'll go, who will take a gamble on him, who thinks you know because there's this mindset in the league that you're better than the than the other the other team you're getting a player for. You understand things intrinsically better. You can make players better, and that's why you know these guys end up all over the place. And, and you know people are like, well. Didn't they watch him play for the last three years? But the the thought process is whoever goes and gets him is going to be like, well, I know how to unlock this guy. You know, I know what it takes. We have a coach that can do it. Or he's going to be playing with his buddy or whatever it is. You know, that was the whole Carter trade, you know, right there was Richards. Let's reunite him with Richards and, you know, he'll be happy again and we'll get the best out of him. I mean, there's always a coach or a GM that thinks, yeah, go get this guy. He's a, he's a unbridled talent and and I can play the mind games that need to be played to make him spectacular but I think Alex Semin is is maybe the biggest Rubik's Cube in the NHL yeah, well, I guess if he, you know, there's rumors he might go to Detroit, and obviously if Datsuk's there, that might help him as well, because that was the lot, you know, he played with Datsuk in the World Championships, too. So it'll be interesting yeah, to see I'm, what happens. I was going to say, Detroit is one of those teams, you know, they'll take on guys that everybody else in the league's given up with because they have a proven track record. You know, you, you walk into any of those teams that win all the time, and it's it's not talk. You know, whoever's, whoever's running that team just says, hey, look around this room. Winner, winner winner look at all our banners the way that this happened is we gave for the team you know and and we did this and and it's a it's a culture of accountability you know you, you look at the patriots in the nfl and then they change over the nfl changes over every year but they have that that culture of accountability and they're always you know right near the top it, it's kind of that same thing there, there's a there's a peer pressure in the locker room that won't let a guy, you know, you need all other 19 guys to stand up to a guy when he wants to flake out. And and there's very few teams in the league that are that unified, you know, so you have to have that kind of culture in your room. So, so speaking of the draft, we had the draft this year in Pittsburgh and I'm not sure what was the bigger story that the players who got drafted or the off ice issues (laughs) that, uh, that came up. But uh, before we get into that, so, what was your overall take on the draft? Who did you think did well? Who did you think kind of messed up? Uh, you know, I thought Washington uh, did okay. They got a couple of guys I was impressed with. And then they got Ribeiro, you know, through a trade for nothing. And I thought, you know, I thought, I think that Ray Shiro is having a June that should win him some kind of award next year. You know, he, he, he made the trades that he made at the draft moved up, got a guy, and then got another guy at uh, 18 that, you know, got, and nobody thought would be there. And, uh, you know, he got rid of Eric Stahl, 
a Jordan stall. Jordan I can't stall. keep all my stalls straight. He got rid of Jordan stall, who had pretty much the day before backed him into a corner, um, which I was somewhat surprised at because Jordan has handled everything with class since he came into the league. But he basically publicly said he would not take an extension from the Penguins, pretty much submarining Ray Shiro if he wanted to make a deal. And he was still able to make a deal with with Carolina so Jordan could play with his brother Eric and get a fair amount of return. I, I think, you know, you're going to look at Brandon Sutter, and he's gonna, he's a nice little Jordan Stahl clone, I think, as that third-line center, and he'll have a couple of years where he's not going to be pining to be one of the big two. So, you know, and the prospect he got that deal was a defenseman from BC. He was pretty good, and, you know, now he signed Crosby to a long-term deal and left a lot of money on the table. So he's had a pretty good summer. So you feel that that he got enough in return for Jordan Stahl. I do. Right. I do because I didn't think I didn't think that I didn't think Jimmy Rutherford, who is a very cagey, cagey GM, would give him anything. Um, Ray had no leverage. He had a guy that didn't want to play for him anymore. That wasn't was just going to play out the string. You can't let him play out the string. You know, like that's going to rip your room apart. If you think you're going to win, you can't have a guy in there that says I'm not signing. You know, any kind of long term deal. I'm just going to play out and get to free agency. Like I, I think that's a recipe for disaster. And, but once that guy comes out and says, uh, you know, I have no interest in this, he he pretty much took all of Ray's leverage away. Ray couldn't go to couldn't go to the Carolina Hurricanes and say, hey, you know, Jordan Stahl, are you interested in him? No, thanks. We'll wait. You know, we'll wait till he hits the free agent market. We have the biggest chip. We have his brothers. You know, because Jared plays in the in the minors for them. So, you know, any deal that would be equal, Jordan's going to pick Carolina because they have, you know, they have the trump card, so to speak. So for him to get, like I said, a player that I think is going to be very good as a third-line center and and a good prospect and that pick, you know, that number, I think it was number eight, um, pick for, for a guy that was an expiring asset, I thought was, Kudos to him. Well, but the big thing is, though, Carolina wanted him desperately, too, because obviously they wanted to re- reunite the Stahl brothers. So, you know, the chip for Carolina was that they had to, you know, give them something back in return. I was I was a little unsure of how good that deal was, but I was also hanging out with uh, Scott Farrell and his crew at the Orion Fest. And I asked Scott, because, of course, he's a big Penguins fan. I said, do you think they got enough? And he said pretty much the same thing that you did, that, yeah, he's good and, and you know, Sutter's going to be a good, solid guy for their third line so all right fair enough and he saved some money you know he i think it was i mean obviously he gave some of it back with the crosby deal but i think he cleared like 16 million off the books with the trades he made because he got rid of mahala two sent him back to phoenix for for nothing you know just got his got his deal off the books basically so he's cleared out some money to make a run i think you know i think they're gonna make a run at both big guys in the free agency market i think he's gonna go after parisi to play with with Crosby, you know they have a pretty good relationship. Uh, Crosby was at the Stanley Cup final as a guest of the Parisi family. They played together in Shattuck, so you know I think there's there's a connection there that can be exploited. And you know I, I think they're going to go after after Ryan Suter. Yeah, I think they need. I mean, Suter would be good, but they still the one missing link that I feel for the Penguins. And you know I hate to you know make this an, an entire Pittsburgh Penguins mental misconduct, but the one missing link that I feel that they, they need a gigantic stud mean defenseman that they miss, they miss Scuderi. I'm not that he's a big mean guy, but he's really, you know, he's a tough defenseman and they really miss 
Hal Gill type. Hal Gill was the perfect piece of the puzzle the year they won the cup. And they need a big stud guy like that, that if anybody comes near Flurry, they're going to get decimated. I mean, you saw that with the Kings with, you know, Willie Mitchell and the other guys they have there. Like, you don't go near Jonathan Quick. And the Penguins need that more so than a forward, I felt. Yeah, I mean, they do. You know, if they get Parisi, it's going to be like Egan Egan at the trough. I mean, they'll have Malkin and Neal, and that'll be their number two line. They're both first-team All-Stars. I mean, you know, that's it's almost unprecedented. But, uh, you know, I agree with you. They they need somebody that's going to snarl and bite and, and whack and hack. And, you know, and it's not going to be how he just resigned with Nashville right before. He's, he's uh, too old anyway. Free agency opened. Um, but uh, he it, it's going to be somebody like him. And the good thing is, you know, if you don't need a skill guy to do that role, if you just need that stay-at-home you know, Punisher, they're not, they don't have to be as skilled as some other defensemen, so they don't cost as much. You know, you can train a guy to somewhat do that. And it depends on what you're, if you want him to be your anchor and your, and your, your enforcer type, not your fighter, but just that guy that keeps the crease clean. He, it's a little more complicated, but if you just want a guy out there that's going to move some bodies around and put the fear of God into people, you know, you can do that. I think they did it a little bit last year with Derek England, and, you know, it'll be curious to see how he continues to develop. I don't think he's the long-term answer, but, you know, unfortunately the Penguins are always going to have to put together, you know, their bottom six and their, and their last two for D because there's, there's just remnants of the cap left when they're done paying all their top guys. Yep. Well, how did you think, uh, what did you think about the Oilers taking Yakupov uh, first? I think that they had to do it. And, you know, I think at some point you're going to have to trade one of those guys. I don't think you can have all those guys together. They're all going to come of age at the same time. They're all going to get big contracts at the same time, one right after another. So, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but to me the most interesting part of the whole draft and it came out the day after was that the Islanders offered their whole draft for Edmonton's number one pick. Again, they were going to do that? Islanders had a pick in every round, one through seven, and their pick in one was four. And I'm sorry, they offered it to Columbus. They offered it to Columbus, not the the Oilers. And some people have said it was only if the Oilers took uh, Murray, the defenseman, then they wanted Yakupov, the Islanders. But other people have said it was regardless because the Islanders ended up taking all defensemen anyways. They took Griffin Reinhardt pretty. I thought was pretty high at four. That's a good. Um, that's a good pick, though. I think for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you would have liked to have seen him try and move down. I don't think he was going to fall off the board at four. Um, but uh, you know, and, and there was a huge run on D, and I think that's where it started when when GM started to see how high some of these D were going. You know, they they just went all in with the defenseman. I, I think there were at one point there was eight in a row taken. It looked like a, a fantasy baseball draft when somebody picks the first catcher, and everybody's like, "Oh no, I got to get a catcher!" And you know, <laughs> they just start going like wildfire, and you, you abandon your whole draft strategy. So you know, but yeah, you know, there were a lot of jokes made about it. To me, it's it's a somewhat interesting proposition on both sides. You know. Uh, how many of those guys, you know, you got seven guys you're going to pick, five of them are coming after number 60. You know, how many of those guys are going to pan out? And, and so it makes sense for the Islanders, but I also understand why Columbus didn't do it. Their, their draft record has not been stellar. I think you make that offer to Detroit, and they say yes in a minute. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, every, every time a team's done that, the past has never worked out too well. But the one thing that you mentioned is, you know, there was a big run on D, and that let the Buffalo Sabres have the steal of all steals in the draft by getting Greg Arenko at number, t- what was it, 11 or 12? I can't remember. But whatever they did. I think it was 11. 11. Steal of the draft. That kid was going to be the absolute number one pick this year when they were talking about him last year until he got injured. But he is a phenomenal player, just as good, if not better, than Yakupov, in my opinion. I've seen both of them play quite a bit, and they're both phenomenal players. Yakupov is very Pavel Bure-like and has amazing skill, but Grigorinko is the full package, I felt. And you obviously had the knee injury, and you wonder about that. But he came back and played, you know, half, you know, he came back and really worked hard to, to get back into the playoffs because the whole run on him was he's, he's not hard, he's a lazy European, all that nonsense that people say about him. But that was the steal. It reminded me a lot of, of Zach Parise, because Zach Parise fell in the draft to the Devils at number 12 that year, because the same thing, there's a run on defensemen and a run on big guys, and Parise just fell and fell and fell. Devils steal of the draft, obviously, if you look at his career, and I knew that when that happened. I go, I can't believe Parise fell that far, and I can't believe Gregorenko fell that far, and it's the Sabres are the beneficiaries of that. Yeah, you know, it was funny because I would say like maybe 10 days out from the draft to the draft, like right around the combine, I guess, there were all kinds of whispers that he was he was falling. It was, you know, it was like everybody was like, oh, he's dropping. I mean, I, I think there were people that had him even lower than that. Um, you know, like respectable guys that do that for a living where they, there was something that they saw and I was so wrapped up in finals and everything else that, uh, you know, I wasn't paying as close attention to it as I probably should, but he, he was falling pretty fast and, you know, both the guys here that cover the draft extensively for us, Adam Tillman and, and Mike Morial, and they're both pretty tuned in. Neither one of them was that surprised when it got down that far. Yeah, it's funny. Like, every, well, not every year, but almost every year there's a guy that you look and you go, like Cam Fowler for the Ducks, same thing. Fell, fell, fell for no no real reason. That otherwise it just became this thing. And the Ducks drafted him again in that middle first round, and he's turned out to be a, a superstar as well. So it's kind of funny how that happens. But I think that Greg Arenko by far will be will be that type of player. I mean, he could be, you know, in, in my opinion, he could be the best player in the draft when it all gets said and done down, down the road. We'll see. I mean, Yakupov and Murray obviously are, are phenomenal talents too. You know what? And that Murray kid, he's, he's a nice defenseman. I mean, he played world he played world championships for Canada as a as an 18 year old. You you don't see that very often, and they didn't hide him. I mean, he played. They were so decimated that he had to play a lot of minutes, and and he acquitted himself very well. So you know, I, I think he's a guy that can play this year and make an impact. Cool. Now you were at the NHL awards, which I didn't watch any of, but just judging from what everybody said and watching them in the past, they were even worse this year. Can you defend yourself? I don't know if I agree with that. You know, whenever I watch them, whenever I'm there and I watch them and we're writing on them, we don't go to the actual awards. We sit in a room and, and, you know, uh, we watch it on TV like everybody else and we we write as the guys win and then they come out and we talk to them. You know, you, you get all this feedback. To me, like hockey... There is no sport worse than hockey looking at itself and being self-critical. Like, everybody loves the game so much that they want it to be perfect. So, you know, you sit there and you follow Twitter and you get emails and people are just like, oh, God, is this awful? This is, you know, there's nothing redeeming about this. And then, you know, for a refresher, you go to the general public feed that you might have on your Twitter account. And, and you know, it's far 
it's far more flattering. Um, you know, I thought there were some. I thought there were some high points. I thought there were some low points. I thought the Shanahan. I don't know if you saw in the Shanahan videos that Will Arnett did. Um, that was good. Were, that was very good. Fantastic. I, I'm not sure there needed to be four of them, um, but they were very good. Um, the Tracy Rogers thing was a little long, but the the Tracy Morgan. Was, you mean Tracy Morgan? Sorry, yeah. The, the premise was was. Uh, pretty decent because he had some good guys to work with as the cut-in with Tortorella and, and Brisgalov. You know, that, that made for some funny moments. And it was a little different this year because there was no host, and I think that made it a little difficult. But, you know, from a lot of the feedback that I got from people that were there, you know, and I'm not talking about league people, like out later that night and, and you know, just kind of wandering around. We did it the win this year. It was the first year we did it there, and, and it's an amazing property, completely different from the Palms. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of people that, that enjoyed parts of it. And to me, the thing with the awards is it's always going to be different because all year we celebrate the team and then we spend this one night celebrating the individual. And then that's a hard, that's a hard jump for a lot of these guys to make. So it tends to be a little choppy because they don't really know how to be in the spotlight individually. Well, yeah. And just the, the format, the talent and everything else. I mean, like the Will Arnett stuff was good, although they, they used too much of it, but it's all they have because they don't have anything else. And the Tracy Morgan stuff was good, but that was it. I mean, you'd think the NHL could get some better talent in there too. I mean, look, I like both Arnett and Tracy Morgan. They're great, but that was it. There's only, only two redeeming qualities. The rest of it was kind of just a joke, if you ask me. But yeah, no, I I thought there were other good things, but uh, you know, I it's so hard to please everybody because you have your hardcore and then you have you know those guys that that are they want to see Hollywood. You know, you're in Vegas, you want to see glitz and glamour. Well, where was the glitz and glamour? Well, the glitz and glamour was was some of the people that they had doing the awards. Who? Matthew Perry. I I mean, obviously, they're not going to be the people. Matthew Perry, it it was great when he was with in Friends, but, I mean, he's a D-level actor at this point in time. Yeah, no, and I understand that. And and like I said, I think it's a they're trying to go happy medium between people that actually are interested in the game and and people that cross over. You know, I I thought that almost everybody there had some sort of uh, connection with the game, Um, and I think I think that's important because when you don't, um, again, hockey fans are so provincial and critical that they'll just smoke you right out and they'll be like yeah but here but here but here's a guy like a guy like will wheaton i mean he's a huge fan he should have been there giving an award away he's probably he would have been bigger name than any of the other people they had there yeah uh, i'm sure there's a ton of people that probably should have been there i I think a lot of the the nhl's not hip that's what i'm trying to explain is that the that there's no hip factor there the people that are running that show have no idea how the entertainment or hollywood works at all it's just it's horrible the people they have there are horrible like i said the tracy morgan and will Arnett thing were off were okay but everything else is just awful they need to get hip there's plenty of young hip people that have real name quality that are interesting people that they could get in there but they just regurgitate the same old has-been names and nothing interesting it's just a joke you know what we gotta do we gotta get we gotta get Matt DeFreeze and, and the Fear Factory boys to present <laughs> yeah exactly well that's a little too underground I, I, I mean, as much as I would love that, that that's too underground but anyway 
So hopefully next month, uh, we were going to try to get our, our good buddy Mike McKenna on this month, but he's getting married now. So I think yes, doing... Congratulations, Mike. Yes, congrats to Mike, because uh, I want to get him in here and talk about uh, IRL racing next week, So uh, next month. So we're going we're gonna to do our best if we can get him off of his honeymoon to, to come in and talk some... He'll obviously talk some puck, and we'll talk some IRL racing with him next month, hopefully. I'm going ha- to have to brush up this month. Yes, you should. It's an awesome, awesome series, and uh, I'm probably next to hockey and and foot, ne- definitely next to hockey and football, my favorite thing. So nobody talks about it. So we'll uh, we'll talk a little uh, indie racing next month, maybe even some F1 at, at, while we're at it. So so yeah, bring, you have a month to brush up and catch up on things. All right, I'll tell you what. I'll brush up on my IRL, and you brush up on your Tour de France. Uh oh okay. Does anybody okay? All right, fair enough. I'll do some. I'll do some. I'll do some performance enhancing drugs and uh, ride yeah. my bike a little longer, and, and I'll be ready. Yeah, there you go. All right, cool. Well, we'll see all you guys next month. Thanks, Sean. All right, thank you.